Welcome to The Playlist Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Barfield, Managing Editor of The Playlist. And in this episode, I'm sharing a recent interview I conducted with James DeMonico, the writer-director of The Purge, and the mastermind behind the entire Purge franchise. Believe it or not, it's already been 10 years since the release of James DeMonico's breakout hit, The Purge. The micro-budget horror film would go on to earn a massive box office and devoted fan base, spawning four sequels in a multi-season TV series. In honor of the film's 10th anniversary, DeMonico joins the Playlist podcast to talk about his 2013 hit and how a fractured country inspired him to make a film about people killing each other for sport. And he also teases what might come in the future. Over the course of our discussion, we dive deep into the political undercurrent of The Purge, from how DeMonico came up with the idea nearly two decades ago, to the way our current political situation is starting to mirror the very scary alternate world presented in the franchise. We also talk about how Universal produced and distributed a film that other studios deemed was quote-unquote anti-American. And of course, we end by hinting to the future of the franchise and why we haven't seen an official announcement for The Purge 6 just yet. I had the pleasure of speaking to DeMonico a couple of years ago, and we talked about The Purge franchise back then. But I have to say that he's one of the most open and interesting filmmakers I've had the pleasure of speaking with. He isn't afraid to voice his opinions, which is clear in his film work. And he's such a fan of genre filmmaking that we have such a blast talking. So when I got the chance to speak with him about The Purge's 10th anniversary, you better believe I jumped at the opportunity. But before I throw it to the interview, I got to tell you the Playlist Podcast is part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which includes Deep Focus, The Discourse, Bingeworthy, and more. And if you want to find us, you can check your podcast app of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Anchor, Stitcher, anywhere else you find your favorite shows. Also, before we get past the plugging here, I just want to talk about my other podcast I've been hosting recently, Templo Talk. This is a podcast where I talk about what I think one of, is one of the best TV series around right now, Mayans MC, which is currently in its fifth and final season on FX. And I have to say, if you're a fan of The Purge and the sociopolitical message buried under the violence, Mayans might just be your jam. So check that, check out the show, give the podcast a listen, because I'm having a lot of fun talking about the show with Mike D'Angelo and interviewing the cast and crew. So, so definitely give it a listen. Okay, without any further ado, let's play my interview with James DeMonico about The Purge celebrating its 10th anniversary. And if you want to watch the film, it's available just all over the place. But I think it's actually streaming currently on Peacock, so give it a watch. Thanks. I'm excited to talk about The Purge again. Indeed, man. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, 10 years. I When, when I got the call to talk about it, I was like, wow, it's 10 years. It doesn't, uh, it feels like 100 years and it feels like less than that sometimes. Like two years or 100 years. I can't believe it's 10 though. Anyway. Yeah. So, <laughs> Go ahead. So, so let's, let's, let's talk about that. So 10 years ago, that's why we're here. You released The Purge. Uh, you wrote and directed it. It became a huge hit. Obviously, back then you had no idea how popular the film would be and how the the term The Purge would become part of like the cultural lexicon for the next decade. Yeah. But mm -hmm. what does it feel like now to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the film and knowing just how impactful your little micro budget horror film would go on to become? It's, and I say this with no hyperbole, still absolutely shocked. You know, it wasn't it was designed when I just got I came up with the idea almost 18, I think 19 years ago. And then I had I directed my first film, um, Staten Island, New York, which you know did moderate success on the the festival circuit around the world, but it wasn't a blowout hit in any way. So I need I knew I needed to write something small after that, and this was designed to be just another indie. To be you know the Purge script was designed. I thought it would be you know we'd get a million dollars maybe, um, played a couple of theaters in L.A. and New York, just something. You know, I just want to keep making movies. I knew I wouldn't get a huge budget after my first films. You know moderate success like i said on the indie circuit but uh so yeah it was designed as being something like i thought like a michael haneke film that played the angelica in new york 
And, you know, we did get so many rejections because it was anti-American. That's what the script was deemed uh, very anti-American from all the, the finances we sent it to. Sebastian Lemercier, the, you know, my producing partner, until Blum read it and then I think saw what Sebastian and I saw. We thought the conceit was, you know, something that was financeable um, and maybe had some play. Blum saw it much bigger than we ever thought. Uh, so, yeah, still shocked that it uh, it kind of broke through because – it was designed to be quite small and an indie. And it was also what we heard from financiers was that it was so damn anti-American that, you know, you couldn't really play this thing to a wider audience. Um, so yeah, absolute shock dude, that it, that it lasted this long, that it's like you said, turned into something, you know, it's, it's entered into the, the lexicon, the zeitgeist of America, even around the world. I was in France recently and the waiter found out I wrote the purge and it's a big thing for the kids who live in the suburbs there um, so yeah, very shocked, man. Still shocked. So yeah, let's, let's go back to the beginning. You, you were talking about this a little bit. The first time we talked, I asked you kind of how you came up with the concept and you said it was mostly kind of about your thoughts on gun control, wealth disparity. And then your wife yep. had a road rage incident and she said, you know, exactly. why, why don't we get a free murder each year or something like that? So you yeah, had one each year. Exactly. <laughs> so you had this world in your mind when you sat down and conceived of the film, but at what point did it become, or, or what point did you think that the best introduction to this world was through a home invasion thriller? Dude, that was honest. Honestly, that was a very calculated. It was calculated in that I knew after my first film that I didn't, you know, knock the, you know, I wasn't this enormous hit either critically or financially. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to get a huge budget on my next film. Um, so let's. How do we do? How do we do this? How do we do this? Uh, I had this idea of this, this kind of holiday, this this new holiday in America, like you said, was a kind of a metaphorical statement on the lack of gun control laws, income disparity, you know, the treatment of the disenfranchised, all that crap, pretentious writer crap. But how do we get the, how do we do this? How are we going to do this? So I think the containing it in one house, I knew I can contain the budget. Not, you know, I don't know if that was in my head, like, oh, okay. Or I don't know how calculated I was at the time, but it was definitely a, it was definitely like, how are we going to get this money and get this financed? So containing it, and I remember what M. Knight did with signs, I always thought was really smart in that he had this enormous idea. It was smart and interesting, too. You had this enormous idea of this invasion happening around the globe, yet we're spending this, you know, with this family, with Joaquin and Mel and the kids. And I thought that was very interesting. So I think it was like kind of this idea, like, okay, this is a way to control budget. It's a very interesting way to show this wealthy family dealing with, you know, these issues on Purge Night. Yeah. So uh, you you mentioned that you you teamed up with Jason Blum and Blumhouse because he kind of got it right and he and he yeah. saw something there that this isn't just an anti-American movie this could be a hit but by 2013 that studio Blumhouse was just starting to make a name for itself uh, with Paranormal Activity and I think like right. the first Insidious and Sinister movies so exactly the- do I think uh, yeah it's, Sinister hadn't even come out because Jason showed it showed us the first cut at his house he just wanted to get a you know. He was very psyched about it, and uh, but we were in pre-production when he showed it to us, so it was just Insidious and Paranormal, like you said, yeah. Yeah, so those movies are yeah. very, very similar, right? Those are like, you know, demon movies and, and scares like that, uh, but The Purge is very different. So what? how did that collaboration with Blum come about, and 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 was he seeing this kind of as a as a way to break out into to other types of thrillers, I guess? I think, yeah, it's a great question, man. I knew Jason in 90, we met, I think, around 2000 or maybe 99, he optioned, actually. He had just left Miramax, 
and he started he started a production company with a woman named Amy Israel. They were partners, and I met them through various people here in New York, and and we became friendly. And he optioned two scripts I had at the time. I was trying to direct it back then. I I had just written Negotiator at that point, and I had some stuff I was you know, really wanting to direct. So he optioned two small scripts I had. Um, we didn't get them made. We almost got one finance close, but we and we stayed friendly over the years. So we had some past, meaning we had a little past. So when I had when I had the purge, I had heard Jason was starting to make these smaller movies. I, like I had heard, obviously, I knew about the success of Paranormal. Um, I had heard about Insidious. I don't think I had seen it at that time. I knew it was a box office hit. And then he had the new deal at Universal. Long story short, I just took, I literally called him out of the blue. I said, listen, Jace, I got this new script. And I was very honest with him. I go, people are passing on it because they think it's too anti-American. Always we have a good relationship of honesty. And um, he's like, let me check it out. And it's fit. It's fit. I think he immediately being so smart, you know, as smart as Jason is, it definitely fit the paradigm of what he was creating, which was these, he knew it could fit in the budget constraints of what he was trying to do, a low budget horror, two, $3 million budgets. Um, what's great about Jason, I'll always stand by this, is he loves political content. You know, I think, and he saw this as maybe something different than straight horror. It was something with social, you know, sociopolitical underpinnings. It wasn't just... It had a metaphor. It was more like what he loves and I love, which is John Carpenter or George Romero. We were trying to smuggle some sociopolitical ideas into some genre cinema. And I think he did maybe see it. We never spoke about this openly, but I do know Jason's a very political guy, as am I. So I think he saw it as a way to maybe start doing a little different in the straight ghost story or demon horror. Yeah. So you mentioned that the, you're, you're teeing up my questions perfectly here because I, <laughs> I, I love the, the socially conscious thriller or horror movie. And I'm a huge fan of Romero's Dead trilogy. Uh, John Carpenter is like my favorite filmmaker of all time with, you know, they Me live too. and, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah, they even live Escape from New York is like filled Absolutely. with so much, so much political commentary. What, what movies or, or directors did you the, take influence of when you were, uh, when you're conceiving and, and, and making the purge. Dude, exactly. Like you said, it was Romero Carpenter. Um, and even other movies, it was uh Soylent green Logan's run. That was a big influence when I was a young man. Um, I was aware of this, I'm a huge fan of an Italian filmmaker named Elio Petri, mm -hmm. a beautiful filmmaker and very political, incredibly po political films. And he had one film called the 10th victim that oddly is very similar to the purge. I didn't learn about the 10th victim until after I wrote the purge, but I was aware of Elio's other films. Um, investigation of a citizen above suspicion, uh, property is no longer theft, really great films, very political and genre. They were, they were considered what the, I can say the word, the Polizio Caddy films of Italy. I never could say that word. Um, so they had the genre, the cop genre attached, but they were very, very political. So it was those guys, I think, all that 70s cinema that I felt, even within genre, they were they were smuggling these ideas. You know, I read that years ago. I read this thing in a Scorsese biography that my producer and I always reference is uh, Scorsese was talking about the, the, the directors, the studio directors in the 40s and 30s or 50s, 40s and 50s, and they were under contract to make westerns and, and cowboy, uh, cowboy movies and, and army movies. They didn't want, they were doing three, four films a year they were sick of doing these movies so to keep themselves some, um, but they were on the contract. So they had to, then he cited something he called smuggler cinema, which is these directors were becoming so bored by directing these studio picks that they were on the, on the contract to do that. They started smuggling, you know, their own political ideas into the pieces. So he says, if you watch them closely, you could see all their political views within. And I always thought that was such a cool idea. This idea of smuggler cinema that were smuggling ideas 
kind of into these packages without proselytizing. So that's the hard part, I think. And I think that's what Romero and Carpenter did so well. Is you, I think as an audience member, we don't want to feel preached to. We don't want to feel like someone's like telling us, think this is the way you should be thinking. So we have to do it, I think, in a way that is kind of like smuggling, where we get people to start thinking, but we're just presenting ideas and letting the people come to their own conclusions. And I'll be honest, I think at points in the Purge franchise, I pushed it too far. I'll be the first to say, I think Purge 5 specifically, my teaming up with Everado, uh, Gout, the the director, which I, I wrote the script, I think we went too far with our political I think we were so angry at the discord in the country and MAGA and Trump that we just pushed everything, I think, a little too far. And we actually proselytized and we, we failed a little. I think it's a good movie. I just think we were, we got a little preachy. So, but yeah, you named it, dude. It's Romero, Carpenter, and then, you know, this idea that Scorsese had, Scorsese had about smuggling. So I, I just to, to digress for a second, I think Forever yeah. Purge is great. So, oh, you know, thank you, man. Thank you. Keep, I love keep, I, I keep like up it the too. proselytizing <laughs> if that's what it turns into. So. Um, thank you, man. So a decade ago, when you're releasing The Purge, the U.S. was kind of in a very different place, right? Obama was in his second term. Yep. We were still polarized, but we weren't in the we were in the pre-Trump era and the political discourse was relatively normal. Um, but you envisioned a future that I think is kind of like scarily similar to where we are now or where we are heading with the rise of like this kind of alt-right regime with wealth disparity being not just yeah. a problem, but like the difference between life and death. So what did you see a decade ago that made you think this country was was heading this way? It's so it's Great question, man. It's, it is hard to say because people will say, oh, you wrote this in the Trump regime. I'm like, no, I actually wrote it in the in the, the Obama regime. And that was even it was probably conceived even before that, well before that. Um, I think it's weird. I live on Staten Island. I don't live in, the, you know, I, I, Staten Island is a very. Talk about a polarized place. It really is polarized. And there's a lot. It's so close to New York City, which is considered one of the most liberal places in the world. Yet it says a lot of. There's a lot of discord on Staten Island because there's a lot of Trump people, and there's a lot of Democrats too, but there's a predominant rise of this Trump feeling all around me, which was which was kind of disconcerting to me. And I started to feel that in the Obama, I think there was something during the Obama administration that I started to feel that there was something happening. People were unhappy. There was a contingent. I don't want to get too political here. Get in trouble with Universal. But it was a contingent <laughs> of um, of of the the body politic that was starting to feel like they were being left behind. And I know Trump eventually. This is who Trump started speaking to. And they were all around me here in Staten Island, people I grew up with. And I started to hear their discontent, which I was baffled by, to be quite honest. I didn't agree with it at all. That there was a portion of the you know the public that they felt was being left behind and. Uh, some other parts <laughs> I'm trying to avoid saying yeah, terrible, yeah. you know, things yeah, I'll get in trouble with. Some other people were being uh, favored by the current administration and they didn't like that. And um, I think it was just by living here amongst the people I grew up with where I started to hear these feelings of discontent. And then Trayvon Martin happened. Sandy happened. Uh, what do you call the uh, Hurricane Sandy happened. And we saw what happened in New Orleans, where people were left on their roofs for days without any government response. I think these things, and we heard the reaction to that, these things were just brewing in my head. And I, and I started to feel that. Whatever, whatever came later, I think I saw on the streets here in Staten Island, where people were talking, even during the Obama administration, about being left behind. Again, which I thought was ridiculous, but I started to feel it. Wow. Um, 
I remember talking to Trump about Hillary losing to Trump, talking to Blum, I'm sorry, talking to Blum. And he's like, Hillary can never lose to Blum. Who's going to vote for Donald Trump? I'm like, Jason, I'm here on the streets of New York and I could on Staten Island and I know people who are going to vote for Donald Trump. He's like, no one's going to vote for Trump. I'm like, you're wrong. And I guess so. I just maybe being around um, a certain part of the population, I started to hear uh, the underpinnings of discontent that really bloomed under Trump. So my favorite aspect of The Purge is, I think that's obvious now, is is that it never shies away from taking a stand. You don't, even when you are trying to, uh, you know, make these big studio movies, you don't ever present a quote, like both sides have a good point argument. There really is right and wrong, and you're not afraid to, to point that out, uh, even in an obvious way, as we've said. But when you were making the original film, was there any pushback from the studio or anyone else involved about just how overtly political it was going to be? And did they tell you to rein it in at all? I did. I got, yeah, there's certain things that we, they were great. I'll, for, uh, I'll preface it saying, I'm still amazed Universal let us get, get away with, and that was probably Jason's help there too, protecting me, you know, with Universal, because obviously they're trying to create, you know, 3000 screen July 4th film. But they were letting us, I, could, I still look back upon it sometimes, and I'm like, wow, they really let us get away with stuff, like you said, where we were literally taking a side. We weren't, we weren't trying to say there were two good people, you know, there, would be, there was good people on both sides of this equation. We were saying, no, this is the wrong side, this is the right side. There were points where, where they definitely said, like, you can't use the name Trump. This is going into the later part of the series, right. where they were like, don't say Trump. You can allude to Trump, but you can't say Trump. They were afraid, I think, part of the audience would get very offended by that. Um, Early on, Purge 1, Purge 1, they kind of let us run free. I think, I don't think, to be quite honest, Charles, I don't think they, I think they were making these Blum films. We were the first film under the new Universal deal. And I don't think they, I'll be honest, I don't think they were paying attention up front. I think they were just letting <laughs> Jason do his thing. It's like, it's a, it's a $2 million film. They're making $100 million films simultaneously. That's where their energy goes. And I think... We didn't get many notes. We just did. It was the strangest thing. We kind of were let free to just go make the film. We actually got more notes, I think, when the movie became a hit. I think they were like, oh, wait, this has potential to continue. And that's when they started giving notes about you're going too far politically. And it wasn't much. I'll say that. It was really it was really the note of don't just don't say Trump. We know what you're saying. You just don't have to say the, the name out loud. That's really what the And then there was a lot of notes, obviously, on the violence and uh, especially sex. I was at some point trying to deal with sexual violence and they didn't want to go there at all. That was a place where, you know, especially with the Me Too stuff that started, I was ready to, to try to really address that in the piece. But going into sexual violence and, you know, there was, there was set pieces like a rape corner in, in one of the purges that he was yeah. two or three. And they were just like, OK, you can't you can't go there. Yeah, <laughs> so that, yeah. This was not happening. So, yeah. So, yeah. So looking back at that original film, especially now, like you said, that the, there have been five purges. Um, is there anything about that original movie that you kind of wish you could change or redo or, or tinker with? That's a great question, man. Um, it was weird. As we made the movie, I knew it was very strange, and I didn't think we'd get a chance to make a second one. But I was like, oh, there's going to be a portion of the audience that's pissed off at me for staying inside this house. Now, I knew we had to. We didn't have the budget to go into the streets. So in the, especially in the editing process, I'm like, God, if I was an audience member and there was a conceit that said, you know, there's mayhem happening across the United States, I think midway through this film, we're going to get some, and we did, we got frustration from people in the early test screenings. They were just like, why are we in one house? So there was always regret, like, God, I wish we could have shown more of what's happening in the streets. 
But then there's people like, well, that's crazy. That's what you do. You know, that's what you did in the fur, the movies. But there was some regret that like, and I think that's why I created, I don't know if you remember the credit sequence in Purge 1, Claire DeLune is playing and I'm showing security cam footage yeah, of yeah. previous Purge nights. It was my attempt <laughs> to satisfy some feeling of discontent that I probably had that we were so locked up. And I knew the audience, my genre fans would be like, well, why aren't we outside? Um, why aren't we seeing what's happening in New York or Times Square? Um, so I had that. Other than that, Listen, I, I'm so happy with the cast, Lena and, and Ethan. Uh, but we had budget constraints. I'll say this, that we shot it in 18 days. So I'll always have like, damn, when I look at it, I'm like, good God, if we just had a couple of more days, maybe I could have made these sequences a little more either scary or full of tension. But when you're shooting that much, you're so running you know, and gunning, just trying to get the material so you could tell a proper story. So I think my regrets have to do with when I look back to how do, how do we shoot a movie in 18 days, a 100-page script, it was really hard on the crew, too. Well, everybody, you know, these are long nights. and uh, So the regrets, I think, have to do with budget and um, and definitely the, the, the constraints of being inside one house. Yeah. So uh, I, I always kind of think about this question every time I, I watch a Purge movie. And it's the, the basic premise is that there is such rage and hurt inside people that they need an outlet and, and mm -hmm. this catharsis to, to lead to healing, to, to hurt others. Do you really think that that rage is in people? And do you think that today in the U S that we would embrace a purge day? That's a wonderful question, man. Um, and really complicated in a weird way. I'm simultaneously full. I have such conflict on this because I think I go, I sometimes drive around New York, there yesterday and my daughter and i'm shocked ever since i was a little boy i've always shocked by any sense of order i don't know where this came from either um, not to get into my personal psyche but i've always been i look around sometimes i'm like my god how is there any order in society why aren't we just running amok and all doing what we want so i've always been shocked that there is any sense of order but i've always found that order to be quite fragile i don't know why we do live in a a very civilized society for the most part but I have been shocked that the thread I find to be incredibly fragile and can break at any point. And we did see that recently with January 6th. Obviously, there's points in time where it does break. But I think, yeah, it's, it's, I, can't, I do believe there is rage in people. I do believe that. I think we all have a certain level of rage that I think the conceit of the evening, I guess I really... <laughs> I'm babbling because it's such a hard one to answer. I've read about, I think I read a lot about violence going back. You know, I was obsessed with uh, the history of the Holocaust at one point in my life, which a lot of people, always, I, when the original script went out, people were like, well, this could never happen. I'm like, well, it did happen. Yeah. You know, it did happen 70, 80 years ago. There was a purge just, you know, you know, you know very what we consider a very civilized part of the world, right? in Europe started there. So I think this has always been in my head that the seeds of this rage that can seep into the body politic at any point, especially from a certain kind of leader, and I think that's why it's such a scary time now with the rise of the anger on the on the right. Um, so I do believe we exist in a place of incredible fragility that could break at any point. And I think that's why the current climate is, I find, incredibly terrifying because we did see it break on January 6th. And the question is, how much further can that go? Yeah. If the proper lies are spread and sold to a to a, a citizenry that is feeling a certain level of discontent, either economically or socially, 
I think things can break. Yeah. I hope I'm making sense. I feel like I might be babbling, dude. Hopefully, no, hopefully no, no, that's good. That. <laughs> that, it, yeah, it, yeah. Isn't, it isn't an easy question. I don't think there's a, a right or wrong answer. Yeah. It's just something that, you know, you, you, you've created such a, a world that, that is, uh, there's so much to think about that, you know, just yeah. the very premise, you're like, well, could this, would this? And, and, and that's a scary thought. Um, it is yeah. absolutely, dude. It really is. It, and it's weird. I just, I just wrote something for the times on the, uh, they asked me to write something about the, the Shirley Jackson story, the lottery. And that's something oh, I read yeah. very little uh, when I was a little boy. And it always freaked me out because she never explained why the lottery was happening. But, you know, you sit there and you speculate on your own about well, why, why were they stoning this woman to death at the end of the story in this seemingly Rockwellian town? But it, it spoke to something bigger, that there is something in us that at any point seems could go haywire. And then simultaneously, and this is what I was trying to get at in the beginning of my statement. It wasn't making much sense was, I feel all that. I feel like the thread is very thin and it could break and we can all just be thrust into savagery and madness. Yet there is that maybe very child, maybe naive childish part of me that believes in we're also a species that can be incredibly humane and kind to each other. And I think I try to infuse that at the end of the film that I try to end every film with a kind of sense of community that people can come forward and save each other. And that's most of the movies end with saving a life. And, and it is kind of calculated that way. Like I always wanted to say, okay, there is hope in this madness. And again, this might be incredibly naive, but I think, I think, I think we have the potential for helping each other deeply. And I think all the movies do end with a sense of morality and, and humanity. Uh, even the first one, when they do help with the stranger who enters the house, instead of sacrificing him to the horde, yeah. And each movie kind of ends with that, like, let's save, let's save, let's come together as a community. So I hope that the movies present, yes, they present this incredibly nihilistic premise. Yet, if you watch them closely, I think there's hope of community winning at the end. So uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about the future. So we talked in 2021. You you said that the the sixth movie was in the works. Frank Grillo, Liz Leo is coming back. And you yep. hinted at a, uh, you know, a time jump with the U.S. kind of during like a second civil war type thing yeah um since since then you know there's that pandemic that's kind of delayed everything but and you've been working <laughs> on something else but uh is there anything more you can tell us about about kind of the Dude, i wrote it i wrote it I, yeah i wrote the script universal seen it uh there's concerns of budget but it definitely presents in america a fractured america that in a strange way marjorie taylor green actually uh spoke about uh, this kind of uh the America I present in Purge 6, she actually is the America that she wants, where we're all kind of separated by ideology or sexual preference. Um, so the states are broken down in different ways, and she wants that. I think that would be the opposite of what America is, and that's why I present it as a nightmare in the sixth one. But, um, dude, it's written. It's there with Universal. It's in their hands. I think they are scared of the budget. My thing was, if I was going to come back and direct a sixth one, it was going to be something bigger and a little more... Uh, uh, something epic in scope, this new America I wanted to present and bringing back Leo's character. So it's kind of in limbo. I think the pandemic changed a lot in the studio system, understandably. You know, box office fell, and I think they're still recovering from the, you know, that market, the streamers. So I don't know. Between you and I, it's kind of in this limbo stage. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, went, I went off and made the, you know another movie, The Home, with Pete Davidson. Um, so I'm kind of waiting to see what they're going to say to be honest between you and i yeah. um and now with the writer's strike it's even delayed things even further yeah so we're kind of in this weird limbo spot 
So, so yeah, before I let you go, let's, let's talk about the home for a little bit. You just hinted sure. at it. You're uh, you've uh, you had, you didn't direct the last two purge movies. And over that time you've, you directed uh, uh, this is the night and which yep. is like a coming of age film. And now you have the home, which stars Pete Davidson. What can you, what can you tease about the home? Cause it's, it's a return yeah, to dude. kind of the thriller, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think a little, it's definitely socially conscious. Again, I think there's a nice metaphor within it, but you know, again, it's more straight genre. Um, in a way, hopefully the smugglers part of it works like we spoke about before. But yeah, I think it's a, it, it goes back to my love of, well, Rosemary's Baby being one of my favorite films. I think it's more in the, it's a psychological horror film, I think, psychological thriller horror. It, uh, Pete's wonderful. I mean, it's, it's a, I think this, this will interest people, I think, is that there's no comedy in the film, <laughs> literally wow. no comedy. So it's a straight kind of drama horror from Pete and he's fantastic. He stepped up. He even shocked me. Pete and I know each other from Staten Island, the kind of uh, in the neighborhood here. We were introduced from a local uh, local mobster actually introduced us, who knew both <laughs> of us. And um, so we kind of got to know each other. He uh, He's a big Purge fan. I'm a fan of his stuff. And then we just, during the pandemic, we were kicking ideas around. And I had written this with a buddy. And he seemed, at first, I was, I can't lie, and I think Pete knew this, I was kind of hesitant. I didn't know if he could handle straight drama. There's not even room for comedy in the movie. So... I was kind of hesitant. I saw King of Staten Island. I saw that he could really act. and uh, But that had comedy in it, so it wasn't. It, it's even more different than that. He's kind of playing himself here. It's a character. Again, no comedy. And uh, yeah, it's a wild one, dude. I think the audience will like it. it the third act of it is a, it's a blood feast. It, it goes kind of off the rails, and I think hopefully a very fun way. We literally just finished it two days ago. I just did the final mix, so I can't wait for people to see it. And um I'm hoping, you know, it was done at Miramax, so now Miramax will try to sell it to a distributor because they're financiers without distribution. So, yeah, we're just entering into that part of it now. But I think people will love uh, love Pete in it and hopefully love what we're saying. And it's got a lot of twists and turns in this one. But the, the third act, I think, will satiate even the most hardcore genre fans because it becomes uh, – a nice blood orgy. <laughs> nice. So, uh, I, like I said, your your previous movie to this that you directed was This Is the Night. We talked about that a couple of years ago, and that's a coming of age movie. And this is a kind of a like you said a psychological thriller. So, do you think you'll always find yourself coming back to uh, to genre when making movies? I think so, man. Yeah, I love genre. I always love. Yeah, I do. It's just I think it's 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 what I love. It's, uh, I love everything. I love every kind of movie. I just watched a uh, new Nori Bill Shalon film, the not a new one, an old one. Once upon a time in Anatolia. I'd love to make that. I don't think anyone will let me make that. But so I love every kind of film. But I think my deep love. I think we all go back to what we loved in our childhood. Sadly, now, I don't know if that's sad or great. But I think we go back to what tickled us and influenced us. I should say and moved us the most in our in our in our youthful years. And I think that was genre. And when I say genre, I mean horror, but also action. I love action over the break. I also wrote this uh, kind of cop epic action drama. So I'm hoping to get that done next. But I think genre is a big pull for me, man. It always kind of feels like home and it's what I love. So, yeah, I'll always go back. Great. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much. I, I want to wrap up, but, uh, thank you, James, for, for talking about the purge. Oh. I, I, it is one of my, my favorite franchises. I can't even lie. It's, it's oh man, it's, that means a lot, Charles. I love you. I love your site. It's one of the few shy sites. I'm not an online person and I, I visit you guys every day. I love your articles and, uh, it's, 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 I love talking to you guys. So well, I truly thank you for taking the time. Man. Oh, thank you. And, uh, yeah, so, so 10 years, let's, here's to another. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> exactly. Let's do another 10, dude. Exactly. And um, I'd love to talk after you see the home, dude. I'd love to know just on a personal level what you thought of it. I'm a big fan of yours, so I'd love to hear what you think. Of course, of course. Uh, well, All thank right, you. Man. 